We can all use some help these days. Make it BetterHelp. For 10% off your first month, go to betterhelp.com AMR. Start living a better life today. Care Of is a wellness brand that makes it easy to maintain your health goals with a customized vitamin plan that helps you feel your best today and supports you long-term. For 50% off your first Care Of order, visit takecareof.com and enter promo code AMR50. We all know we should be eating more fish to get our omega-3s and protein, but the seafood counter can be intimidating. Wild Alaskan Company takes the guesswork out of buying wild-caught seafood. Right now, you can get $15 off your first box of premium seafood when you visit wildalaskancompany.com AMR. Welcome to AMR Trains, a podcast about training and racing in endurance sports. I'm Dimity McDowell, co-founder of Another Mother Runner. You all are in for such a treat today as I talk to Catherine Bertin. If you don't know who she is, you will soon. I'll just read a portion of her bio, which includes that she is an author, athlete, activist, former pro cyclist, and documentary filmmaker. She retired from bike racing in 2017, but remains active in advancing equity for women's pro cycling. Her documentary is called Half the Road, and that illustrates the vast disparity between the world of men's and women's pro cycling. She chronicles making the film Half the Road, along with her pro cycling career, her birth and passion for activism, her mental health struggles, and her love life in Stand, a memoir on activism, a manual for progress, what really happens when we stand on the front lines of change. We're going to talk about all of that um, in this podcast, but before I do that, I should add, Catherine and I were teammates for a short spell on the Women's Colgate crew. She is three years younger than I am, so our paths only crossed briefly. She was you were a freshman and I was a really cool senior, so I couldn't really, you know, associate with you too much, right, Catherine? <laughs> exactly. Only you never actually came across that way at all. You were kind and inviting. And I was just, you know, I looked up to you as as any freshman would to their seniors in the sport. So thank you for being awesome and kind from day one. That's awesome. Well, yeah, yeah. Well, so I as I mentioned to you over email, I devoured your memoir stand. Um, I love memoirs that are brutally honest about real life (laughs) and contain (laughs) loads of specific details. And you did not disappoint me there at all. And we're going to get into the present, but let's first talk about the past. And you have such an amazing, fun, athletic career. So just give us an overview um, starting. I mean, you can even start before Colgate rowing if you want. Oh, Jimmy, thank you first for having me on your show and just for being a, a guiding light, you know, providing a platform for women for, from running to motherhood to endurance sports to, to everyday life. It's really cool. I followed you for years. So it's a joy to be here. Reunited. <laughs> yes, definitely. Definitely. I'm, I'm equally ex- as excited. Thank you. Okay. So um, the I'll pick it up a little bit from where we left off with our rowing days, but I'll mention that, yeah, you know, growing up, I was a figure skater. That was my sport. Um, I grew up near a rink, you know, in the suburbs of New York City. And I, 
absolutely wanted to take skating as far as I could go. My father was a rower. And when I got to Colgate, he said, you know, well, you, you should look into rowing to try this rowing thing. <laughs> <laughs> and um, all paths led to Colgate crew. So uh, it was an awesome thing to still have skating, but also rowing. Um, and, you know, both of those sports involve water. And when I went to graduate school in Tucson, there was not a whole lot of water around, <laughs> <laughs> neither ice nor water. And a friend of mine said, oh, you should get a bike. It's a very similar muscle group to to running and to skating and to rowing, you know. So look, seek that out. And I got into triathlon in grad school. Uh, and what I didn't realize was how much that sport would captivate me. And I really thought, oh, maybe I can go pro in triathlon. And about five years later, I did get a professional card and I started racing in triathlon. And I'll shorten this. I was also working as a journalist with ESPN. And that's when a very life-changing assignment came around in 2006. And the assignment was, okay, we at ESPN want to know what it takes to get to the Olympic Games. And the Summer Olympics of Beijing 2008 are two years away. So, you know, let's write about this. And I remember thinking, okay, awesome. Uh, who do you want me to write about? And, <laughs> and they said, oh, no, no. We want you to be the guinea pig. Try to get to the Games. Go. And I was like, oh my God, you know, these two worlds collided. My love of journalism and my love of sports all of a sudden merged together. And I went on this unbelievable quest for two years. Um, the, the sport that I settled on trying and attempting was road cycling. As a triathlete, I was doing the longer distances like Ironman and half Ironman. Those were not Olympic events. Uh, however, I was strongest on the bike. So I said, okay, maybe, maybe the cycling thing could work. And I jumped into cycling, um, you know, and it started out as a journalism assignment. I had no idea that it would become so life-changing. I fell in love with cycling. And when the assignment ended, um, and spoiler alert, since it's already out there and published, I did not make the <laughs> Olympic games in 2008. But the crazy part was that I came very close and that spurred this idea of, oh, maybe I can get there. And really what was happening behind the scenes was I was noticing so much inequity in women's pro cycling. And, you know, at this point I was still amateur and I thought maybe I can get to the pro ranks. Maybe I can have an effect in women's pro cycling where I can help bring a little bit of parity to the sport. You know, these, these are my kind of behind the scenes thinking, but at that time I was still on the ESPN assignment. So yeah, when it ended, I was like, all right, let's see what we can do here. And yeah. I was fortunate to land my first professional contract in cycling at age 37, <laughs> which was such an antiquated age for cycling, which back then they actually um, had a rule in place where women's professional UCI teams could not average over the age of 28. And that made no, isn't that incredible? What, what, do, no do you know what the, the genesis for that was? Why that rule was created? Yeah, it was pretty much traditionalism and sexism that had that rule in effect. It was kind of one of those things where there was absolutely no good reason. Um, on the men's side of the sport, they have a they have two realms in the professional side that, that are equivalent to what we know in pro sports as the major leagues and the minor leagues. And okay. 
in the minor leagues, which, you know, still professional, you're still getting a paycheck. It's just much lower, <laughs> but in the minor league of the men's side, they had an age requirement that the men, the, the pro continental men um, had to average something like less than uh, maybe it was 23 years, but that was at the minor level, not the major level at that okay. age, the guys could be any age. So what they did was they just kind of relayed this rule over to the women but for all women, all ages, all levels, you know, the women only had one level of, of professional sport in cycling. And so it made no sense. Like you're going to just cap the entire women's pro circuit at, at 28. That's ridiculous. Yeah. And yeah. right. So, so it was, it was, it was antiquated and it was sexist. And I remember the UCI thinking like, well, if we have it for the men, we should have it for the women, but they never took it that extra step in making two tiers for the women. Sure. So it was crazy. It was badass backwards and bonkers, as I like to say. <laughs> <laughs> but you got, but you got your contract. But before we get into, I want to talk a little bit more about that that huge gap between the men and the women. But what did you like about cycling? I'm just curious, mm. like physically, team wise, this mm-hmm. the training, whatever. Like what, like what, what brings you back to the bike? You know what, Dimity? It's the same vibe that I got from rowing, from the sense of you know this in crew. You really are just that you're a crew you are eight women working together as one unit and it's very similar in cycling although you're not all conjoined by one bicycle you know <laughs> a little different there that would be quite a bike that would be that would be it would be it would be i've seen evidence of those bikes um but they you know we don't race on those so um yeah it's it was definitely something for me that had that cohesive teamwork element and not a lot of people who are new to cycling know that it's a team sport you know, they think it's just a whole bunch of people and the fastest one wins. But sure. what happens behind the scenes of cycling, which is really, really, you know, entertaining for the fans, is how those teammates work together in a chess format, you know, um, from attacking to defending to time trialing. There are so many different roles in bike racing that once I understood how that worked, I was just transfixed by the team element. So yeah. that's what I loved about it from the the mental capacity, you know, trying to solve this chess game with a team. And, uh, and then from the physical capacity, uh, rowing, cycling and skating and running really share the same use of the uh, dominant quadricep muscles. And so I love that physical release. It's like my body understood cycling. And, and of course, I love the endurance element of it too. So for me, that that was like this perfect package of like, I love this sport. <laughs> good, good, awesome. Well, yeah, it's, it's a fun, I I like, I, I don't understand the racing very much, but when you do see it like, like on television and talk to pro racers, like definitely it is, there's a big part of putting the pieces together. Like you said, a chess game, that's that's a good way to describe it. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, but, but we, I, I really do only see the men on TV, right? And um, mm-hmm. that is a big part of the gap of, between men and women. Can you talk a little bit about the disparity um, between those two genders in this sport? And, um, and, and I mean, you, you already kind of talked about where you started to learn about it, but when did it become like such a harsh realization for you? Yeah, I think that um, I, I made mental notes as I was doing the quest for, for ESPN, you know, uh-huh. because that's when I was first exposed to these races. And there were many events where you, they would combine the pro amateur field so, you know, you had this opportunity to race with pros, even if you weren't yet one. So okay. when I was in that circle of races, I, 
things came to mind that made no sense. For example, why aren't women invited to all of the races where there's a men's event? Um, why, when we are at those races, is the distance cut in half? Why, why are the women's races so much shorter? You know, and then finally at the pro level, when women were racing for money, why was the prize purse so disparagingly small to the men's? So those are the big three factors. And my journalism brain was always like, why, why, why is it like this? Why? You know? <laughs> sure. And there were no good answers whatsoever. So that was for me, you know, and especially coming from the sports that I mentioned, like um, skating and rowing and running men and women and boys and girls always had access, equal access to the boats, the lakes, the rinks, the, the parks, you know? So, you know, transferring into the cycling world, I'm like, what on earth is happening here? Why, why, especially, I should also mention coming from the triathlon background, men and women race on the same exact course at all yeah. the races and the same exact distance and the same exact prize purse. So I feel very fortunate that I had that exposure in those sports. Um, otherwise, I might not have understood how backward it was to step into you know the cycling world and have none of those things align. Sure, sure. And um, I mean, was, was there one like what? So you so you're going to have to tell the story because I'm not good enough to do it. But you ended up sending your, an email. Um, for inclusion for women in the Tour de France, which um, am I saying that right? Is it Tour yeah. de France or France? Oh, you can yeah. you can do it. You can do it either way. Tour de France, you know. <laughs> Tour de France. Uh, <laughs> Any way you like. We all yeah. we know what you mean, and I only I say Tour de France. Very okay, Tour de France. Know. It sounds very Minnesotan, like Tour de France. Yes. It <laughs> um, Pronounce but, it any way you want. <laughs> okay. Um, but you, you wrote an email um, to the organizers um, looking for inclusion. I mean, and you kind of targeted that race because of visibility. Is that correct? Exactly. So Tour de France is the one race that, you know, 99.9% of the human population can say, oh yeah, I've heard of that. It's a bike race in France. Yeah. You know, yeah. It, and it's very rare that you encounter someone who doesn't know what that is. So what the Tour de France is for cycling is what Wimbledon is for the for tennis, you know, um, what the Boston Marathon is for runners, and what the Olympics is for for all athletes trying to be the best, right? Sure. So it made sense for me saying, okay, if we're not seeing women at the, the highest level, the most pinnacle event of cycling, then that's sending the message that women don't belong or women are less than in secondary. So it only made sense to me to say, okay, change has to come from the top down. Let's go right to the top, cut out the middlemen and we will see the effect trickle down. Um, now, of course, <laughs> ASO, <laughs> who is the parent company, it, the initials stand for Omri Sports, organization and it's a family-based organization that has basically owned the tour de france since the get-go wow. back in 1900 right wow, <laughs> so wow. they yeah old school old school so um when i targeted aso uh you know i it wasn't just sending them an email like hey make a women's tour de france it was an actual uh business proposal that i had worked on for for many many months um, and my request was just to sit down and have a meeting with them and show how it could be financially lucrative for them to include women. Um, I should mention here for, for listeners who are new to cycling, I wasn't fighting for women to race on men's teams. I was fighting for women to have equal access into having their own race. 
you know, just like we see in all sports, like marathon, it's not like the women are running against the men, but the women are there having their same event on the same course, et cetera. Right. Sure. So, yeah. And the women <laughs> you, you were looking, I mean, you know, again, we won't get it. We won't tell the whole story. I mean, mm. we will tell the, the definitely, but like you were like, okay, we'll get up at, we'll start at 5 a.m. We're used to doing that or 6 a.m. We'll stay in like the castles. We'll sleep in tents along the way. I mean, there were a lot of arguments that they pulled out, like not enough hotel rooms, not enough this, not enough that. And you're like, dude, we make nothing. We are used to sleeping on floors. Like we just want to be seen, right? Yep, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah the castle conundrum was always my favorite when they're like, <laughs> there is no room for the women, you know? And then every time you watch a Tour de France broadcast, they talk about all of these like empty castles along the side of the courses. I'm like, oh, we'll stay there. <laughs> you know, duh. But um, I don't think they even understood that yes, of course women will get up at 5 a.m., especially rowers. That's what yes. we do. <laughs> right. So uh, you know, that that wasn't even on their radar. But also behind the scenes, what was so fascinating to me was that for for excuse me, five years from 1984 to 1989, there was a women's tour de France. Um, the distances were shortened for what at that time was a theoretical reason. You know, of, it was true that they wanted the men and the women to exist on the same day. So they shortened the women's race so that both men and women could be seen on that day. I okay. mean, in theory, honestly, they should have just shortened the men's and the women's race so they had equal distance. Sure. But whatever, you know, back then, the idea was that the women were there. And it wasn't like it was that shortened. It was just a little bit. So um, it was incredible that for five years, this race ran and the fans loved it. You know, they climb up into the Alps to watch the race go by. And to think that they then got to see two different Pelotons roll through was amazing. Now, that was also back when um, there was really no TV coverage for oh. the Tour de France. And it was in roughly around 1989 that they started selling the rights. ASO started selling the broadcast rights. And rather than include the women, they just sold the rights to the men's race and got rid of the women's race. Hmm. And you know, so then there was some, you know, grumblings and the women and the women's race director at the time even said, well, fine, we'll go have our own women's tour de France. And ASO said, well, good luck with that because you can't use the name tour de France. We own that and you may not use it. And that's really, that right there is pretty much just blatant sexism. They weren't even allowing access you know, to, to the name. Can you imagine if like the, the Olympics had like, oh, the Olympics for men and then women's stuff over here, <laughs> right? Like that's just, that's not cool. It doesn't fly. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, and so what happened was they, they had a race where called the Grand Boucle and it was basically the Tour de France, but it wasn't allowed access to the naming rights. It was set at a different date, didn't have any TV coverage. And so the sponsors kind of pulled away from that after time. Sure. So it, it goes to show that this is why if there is equity at the top and you include females equally, yeah. then obviously it can be lucrative for, for both sides, but they didn't get the memo back in 1989. So yeah. um, that's what we were up against. Uh, so yeah, I sent this email saying, let's revisit this. There was a whole business proposal, et cetera. And my request, like, can we sit down? Can we talk about this? Yeah. And yeah. I heard nothing. Yeah, I was about to say, so they didn't get that memo. They didn't, or they didn't respond to your email. They probably mm -hmm. got your email, but didn't respond. Yes. So, I mean, so a lot of this, um, these questions, a lot of this, uh, 
your storylines intersect, right? They come, mm -hmm. um, you know, like half the road comes in and that helps with the Tour de France stuff. But I just want to kind of, so I'm going to just know that like, it's not as neat as what we're talking about right now. Um, and right. you can explain it as best you can, Catherine. But so, so you assemble quite a team of impressive women to kind of bring some more visibility to, um, to gender, bring women back into the tour. So tell us about these, uh, these three women. I mean, I was, um, I was very impressed. Oh, so was I. I was so <laughs> impressed that these women would sit down and talk with me. It was yeah. awesome. Um, so this would have been around 2012. And I had pitched the idea of making a documentary film on women's pro cycling to ESPN, especially now that I had a pro contract, I had access to all of these amazing uh, characters, you know, yeah, in the yeah. sport. And I knew who was who and who would make a great person to interview. So ESPN turned down this film. And, you know, my gut was just like, no, no, we have to make this. Okay, ESPN, if you're not going to do it, I'm going to do it. And then it was actually terrifying to say that out loud, you know, and be like, oh my God, now, yeah. now I have to go do this. <laughs> <laughs> um, but luckily at that point, you know, as I put out all these requests to the, the amazing women in the sport, hey, will you sit down for an interview? Uh, they agreed. And I got a hold of, Mariana Voss, who is now a two-time Olympic gold medalist and multiple-time world championships. Like, I think she's got like about 15 world championship titles by now. Um, and she's of the Netherlands. And then uh, Emma Pooley of Great Britain, again, Olympic medalist and multiple-time world champion. And then Chrissy Wellington, who is four-time Ironman world champion. And boy, she was on fire, you know, 2011, 2012. She was just recently retiring from the sport, but she had quite a platform and yeah. she agreed. You know, I asked all of these women when I was making the documentary film, Half the Road, I said, do you want to see women at the Tour de France? Do you want to race it? And they all emphatically agreed. Yes, women need to be at the Tour de France. And that's when the light bulb went off. Like, okay, if ASO and also ESPN are not listening to me. I'm not, um, you know, I don't have the, the gold medals and uh, the media exposure. Well, these women do. And if we band together, maybe we can really affect change. And my role is like, okay, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a good organizer. I'm a little bit type A, you know, and uh, I, can, I, I can be the person behind the scenes, you know, being an effective uh, writer, for how to put this all together. So this is really important because I, I want to remind people that we truly are all capable of affecting change. You know, we don't need to be famous or wealthy yeah. or world championships. We can play a huge role being the organizer or, you know, as I call it in the book, you know, they were the stars and I was the space dust but someone's got to drive the bus, you know? And I'm like the space dust bus driver. And I love it. I, that's, I'm happy to be in that role and it makes me happy. So yeah, so that's when the, the gears started turning and all four of us said, okay, here's you know our next step. We are going to petition ASO to include women. And really the heart of that petition was, listen, here's how we want to affect change. We want to work with you. We're not saying, oh, just, make a tour de France. We're like, no, we want to work with you to make this happen. And we want to sit down with you and have a meeting as to how to go about doing this. We had an agenda. We had a business plan. We had a website. So it wasn't just like launching this blind petition. There was sure. so much behind it. 
that gave weight and credit right yeah so yeah. uh and i think that's an effective part of change making too like um don't just ask be ready to set you know sit down at the table and make it happen what you're asking for so um yeah and keep in mind back in we launched this petition in 2013 and by then change.org had been around but it also was still new and it, it you know, you had to kind of sign up and give a little bit more information to create a profile to sign a petition than you do now. Like now you can just be like, click, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, exactly. I mean, <laughs> which I'm is in. great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but back then you had to put some effort in. So what happened was we had 98,000 people worldwide sign our petition. And boy, did that get the media going. And it yeah. also, we became one of change.org's most successful top three petitions of 2013. And that yeah. was huge. You know, it was groundbreaking. And then the media steps up to the plate. And then the media starts putting the pressure on ASO. Like, what do you think about this? And at first ASO, <laughs> there were so many accounts of the head of the Tour de France just kind of just being like, Mah you know, and brushing it off. Like, this is annoying, you know? <laughs> <laughs> those women, tell them those to be women, quiet. Yeah. Those women, those uppity women, tell them to go away, you know? <laughs> so we didn't go away. We kept at it. And behind the scenes, ASO did agree to a meeting. And as I talk about in Stan, what's very comical to me is that we had to keep that meeting. We were gag ordered. We were not allowed to talk about the meeting. Otherwise, it wouldn't happen, you know? Yeah, yeah. And wow. it was it was a wild experience it, to the point of I would say something on Twitter, like interesting things are happening and they would say, take down your tweet. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. Oh, really? OK, they are real. They were policing big time and people ask why. And I, and I really we all fully believe that they wanted anything that was going to come of this meeting. They wanted it to be their idea. Sure, you know, sure. that this is our idea to have women at the Tour de France, you know, yeah. and <laughs> and um, what's funny, we kind of giggled and went along with it. We're like, OK, it's all your idea. But ninety eight thousand people <laughs> said yes, we said this. yes. So yeah. whatever, just let's make change happen. And you can claim all the all the credit you want. But the truth is out there and we don't care. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, well, so um, two things that I want to say before we get going uh, to the next question. So I. Um, I pulled a lot of quotes from your book because, again, I just thought it was so well written. And you, in one of these, actually, I was going to come back to it, but you said this about putting your team together. And you said, being greatness and creating greatness are two different things. And we're all capable of the latter. And I think that's important. I think sometimes we think like, oh, I only have 15 Instagram followers or I only am this like suburban mom you know, who's overwhelmed with my kids and everything. And, you know, jumping in, you got to jump in, right? Like, and there's, you don't have to have an Olympic medal. You don't have to have a PhD. You don't have to have necessarily a social media platform. Um, so that was, that was, I really liked that you differentiated there. And I love that you stood your ground with those guys. I mean, you know, there was a lot of times or not a lot of times, but a few times that you documented where you, where, you know, you were like, no, I, I started this, I deserve to be here, right? Mm -hmm. Like, this is my, this is my party too. Um, so that was great. Um, very Thank cool. You. Um, and then, but going back to, um, so just give us, uh, cause I don't want this podcast to go as long as the bike race. I, I want to cover a whole bunch of other stuff. So give us kind of the, the evolution. You, you got to ride in the one day, um, Tour de France, uh, and women's, uh, and it wasn't because that you didn't create it for you. You made it that very clear. Like you were kind of a last minute addition on a 
you know, put the eighth cyclist on a team or the sixth cyclist or whatever. But what year was that, that, that they did include women? Yeah. So, um, the petition was launched in the summer of 2013 and a year later at, uh, you know, July 27th, 2014 was the addition of La Course by Tour de France one day event. And we worked that entire year with ASO. And to be honest, as the book shows too, we did the lion's share of the work, you know, totally unpaid, um, but at the same time motivated by like, if this is gonna happen, we, we have to step up and make this happen. And uh, we did, we did the lion's share of the work for ASO in making it. And, you know, of course they, they love claiming credit and that's fine, whatever, we got to be there. And uh, yes, I was, I had been racing on one team and then I was no longer on that team, full story in the book. Yes. And, you know, I was, I was dropped from that team for quote unquote, being a rabble rouser. And then another team picked me up for being a rabble rouser. <laughs> so I was very fortunate to race with Wiggle Honda Pro Cycling for 2014. And I got to stand on the start line of my dreams. And it was amazing. I'll never forget it. It was uh, just a pivotal moment, not just as an athlete, but in my life. And yeah, yeah, and the whole reason it was one day was because ASO said, well, okay, we're going to try this out for just one day because we don't even know if it'll be marketable, you know, and we're like, oh my God. You know, the whole plan was that um, the, the race would grow by three to five days annually, you know, okay. kind of like a building block so that teams could budget accordingly, like the sport is growing and, you know, we'll include the women incrementally more each year until it's full equity you know of course aso was like yes yes good idea but they didn't do it but they stuck with that one day format which i'm very very grateful for and we'll always be thankful that we got our foot in the door for that even though aso did not keep their promise here's the crazy part is that um la course by tour de france that first year it was broadcast by 125 225 different countries over 54 different um uh streaming services and networks that were wow. like, jumped on board and immediately the return of investment was worth it and within 24 hours aso said yep we're doing this again 2015 and okay. we were all like oh good three days at least right and that's where they were like no same model it was so good we want to make sure one more year <laughs> oh. <laughs> so so they did it again 20 has it has it been a staple i i'm not even aware i know yeah. that there's every every year it's been just a one-day thing so far it is it's 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 gone through what i like to call shape shifting yeah so one time uh, for the first two years possibly three years it was held on the champs Elysees, you know a lap course right in in downtown paris right yeah that's yeah. which is great for broadcasting um however you know obviously the tour de france is a tour and it, it also includes mountain passes and time trials and team time trials all the different branches of cycling so um we you know we were excited one year when aso had this big announcement and, and we were like oh finally they're adding more days and what they did was they moved it from the champs Elysees to the mountains and we we're like oh okay so you moved it but you didn't actually elongate this into multiple days. Um, and then, you know, the, the press got on them. They were like, boo, you're just shifting course. You're not actually growing it. Sure. Then the next year, they, in their eyes, they thought they were growing it. They added a second day, but it was ridiculous. They added the second day was 
a time trial event where they selected 20 athletes to participate almost like a a show pony category. Like, yes, there's a second day, but only you 20 that we select will be able to race. And we're like, wait, that's not how bike racing works. Yeah. Yeah. And you don't just pick the 20 that you want to, you know, glamor up and put out on a bike. Doesn't work that way. Yeah. Yeah. And then they went back to the one day format. And of course, behind the scenes, we're like pushing and pushing and pushing for a change. And finally, as, as you know, they just came out this year with the announcement. Here we are seven years later, and they come out with the announcement that next year, 2022, we will actually have an eight-day stage race at the Tour de France, and it will be called Tour de France Fim, you know? Yeah. So this is huge. It, it's just um, remarkable how much work. How long it takes. How long it yeah. takes. Yeah. And, you know, the big, I think the big changing point there is the fact that this one amazing sponsor is Zwift, which is a platform for people to train inside on bikes, you know, um, similar to what Peloton is doing, you know, you can hook up Zwift to your own bicycle. Now it's amazing. Anyway, um, Zwift stepped up to the plate and said, we're going to sponsor for the first four years of the women's tour de France. Oh, I didn't know that. That is that incredible. That just came out incredible. just a day oh. or two ago. Okay. Oh, and my gosh. Right? And that's where Tour de France, you know, ASO is like, oh, okay, we have money. Let's do this, you know? Yeah, yeah. But it comes down to a sponsor like that saying yes. And then making this four-year, multiple-year commitment right off the bat is huge. Exactly. Yeah. Because yeah. that is what it takes to grow anything, you know? Yeah. So yeah. That's, it's amazing. And I'm just so thankful for, for Zwift. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that is awesome. Wow. So really we're looking at your, so you said in the book, it took 1500 days f- from your first email to that meeting. Okay. <laughs> and then, and then it took another basically 2014 to 2022 is eight years to yeah. even get uh, the next step up from what they originally agreed to. It sounds like. Correct. Yeah. Correct. I mean, what an exercise in patience. I mean, is that one of your, um, <laughs> another lesson for activists? Oh, I will say this patience has never been my strong suit. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I think that when we talk about something like this, like, um, there's, when you step into the realm of activism, there's so much that's going to happen behind the scenes that the whole world is not going to see. Right. Yeah. But, and, and I think that's where we have to be patient the most is um, people aren't always going to know how hard you're working to make change happen behind the scene. And that, yes, it always has to be a team effort um, and it never ever has to be about individual glory. Right. Um, and if those ingredients are all combined, then yes, something's going to work out. Um, but it's funny when people, you know, will sometimes be like, oh, this is great. You know, the tour is happening. Like, congrats. Uh, you know, but they they might not realize how much was going on behind, behind yeah, the scenes. Yeah. So I'm thankful. I'm so thankful to be part of it. And I think it's important to know, too, that I did play a very, very big role in getting the door open, you know, getting my foot in the door and, and keeping it in the door for seven or eight years. Yes, um, yes. But it really comes down to that team effort, not just the team that I had with Emma and Marianne and Chrissy, but the fact that um, others were able to use their voice from that part forward, you know, because change really does have to come from within. And I retired from pro cycling in 2017. And back then, I was the verbal squeaky wheel. And I, I paid a price for that, you know, um, and I had silent support from my 
my teammates and competitors, many were too afraid to open their mouths and speak openly about inequity or creating change because we were taught that we had to smile and wave and say everything's great in pro yeah. cycling, you know? And now I'm seeing the current athletes just really step up to the plate on social media, not being afraid to say, hey, this is wrong. We got to fix it. And that gives me so much joy to see that those who are active are still fighting for change. Yeah. Well, and even somebody like uh, Naomi Osaka, who was pulled out of French Open Wimbledon, I mean, she is definitely, I feel like there is definitely a new chapter starting. And I, I realize it's about her mental health and, and her, um, what she needs to prioritize. But I mean, can you imagine that happening at five years oh. ago, 10 years ago? No, no, right? no. I'm so thankful. The attention that is now being cast on mental health and, you know, yeah, Osaka is paying a price for this. You know, Michelle Wee in golf, same yes. thing. The G7 of soccer, you know, these women are, are not just speaking out and taking a stand, but um, they're letting us into the mental health side of how hard it is too. And we need to definitely talk about that. And I'm so thankful that that's on the radar of people now. Yeah. Our worlds are opening up around us, yet it can be hard to take those steps back toward increased happiness or achieving your goals. BetterHelp is here to help. You can start communicating with your own licensed professional therapist in under 48 hours. BetterHelp is convenient, professional, and affordable. You get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions and send a message to your counselor anytime. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed, which was really important to me when we first used the service, as was knowing that BetterHelp offers a broad range of licensed professional counselors who specialize in a wide range of issues, including but not limited to depression, stress, anxiety, anger, grief, trauma, and sexual slash gender identity. So many people have been using BetterHelp that they're recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. That was not a surprise to me. I was so grateful to try BetterHelp. For months, months, I've been searching for a family counselor to work with my husband, our teen twins, and myself. It was truly impossible to find a therapist accepting new patients. With BetterHelp, we were talking to someone within days. Start living a happier life today. Get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com AMR. Join more than 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. That's betterhelp.com AMR for 10% off your first month. Thanks, BetterHelp. Care of is a wellness brand that makes it easy to maintain your health goals with a customized vitamin plan that helps you feel your best today and supports you long term. All of Care of's products are formulated with good for you, clean ingredients that are backed by science. They're transparent about the research and sourcing behind each of their products. Care of has this nifty five minute online quiz that's like getting a one on one consultation with a nutritionist, all without leaving your house. Answer questions about your diet, lifestyle, and health concerns to help address your specific wellness goals. Me, I adore a good quiz, so I really love that Care of takes this approach to provide personally tailored recommendations. I just started taking my Just For Me Care of Vitamins, so it's too early to tell any changes, but I appreciate how I could choose to focus on energy, fitness, and brain. I mean, come on, I'm a master's age runner. For 50% off when you place your first Care Of order, visit takecareof.com and use promo code AMR50. That's 50% off your first care of order when you go to takecareof.com and enter code AMR50 at checkout.
We all know we should be eating more fish to get our omega-3s and protein, but the seafood counter can be intimidating. Which fish tastes the best? What type of cut? Can you really be sure about the quality? Wild Alaskan Company takes the guesswork out of buying wild-caught seafood. I was really pleased to find out about the Wild Alaskan Company membership because I'm nervous about cooking fish at home. Now I realize, with simple techniques and high-quality seafood from Wild Alaskan, I can cook restaurant-quality dishes in my own kitchen and grill. Wild Alaskan Company delivers high-quality, sustainably-sourced, wild-caught seafood right to your door. Each shipment contains premium, wild-caught, individually-wrapped portions of delicious seafood, salmon, whitefish, or a combination that's ready to prepare and easy to cook. Wild Alaskan Company seafood is how nature intended it to be. Always wild, never farmed or modified, and it contains no antibiotics. My husband Jack adores salmon, so he was over the moon when we got our first Alaskan Company delivery. I made us a scrumptious grilled salmon salad with lime, chilies, and herbs, following up recipe by mother runner Melissa Clark, which was a lovely light dinner on a recent hot evening. And Jack used our neighbor's smoker to smoke some of the salmon. Right now, you can get $15 off your first box of premium seafood when you visit wildalaskancompany.com slash AMR. That's wildalaskancompany.com slash AMR for $15 off your first box. wildalaskancompany.com slash AMR. Make sure to use our URL to let them know we sent you. In the introduction to Stan, you write, we need to talk about the nasty underbelly of activism um, and it's beautiful beautiful wings. And then later you write um, about how hard the role of activism was and how it took quite a hit on my personal life. And um, I mean, you want to kind of, I mean, you you, you don't um, leave anything out here, or as far as I can tell, you don't leave much out in the book, um, including like relationships with bosses, colleagues, conversations, emails. Um, but, but your personal life, I mean, kind of fell apart. Your marriage fell apart in the middle of this. I mean, can you talk a little bit about that and how you, how you coped? Yeah, I'm happy to right talk for... about it because, you know, some people, when I do an interview, they're like, can we talk about this? Is it okay? I'm like, oh, I wrote all about it. Anything I write about, <laughs> it's okay to talk about. It's out there. Um, but yeah, you know, uh, as all of this was really coming together. So the, the Tour de France, the La Course by Tour de France was happening. Half the Row, the documentary film was now being screened worldwide. It was happening. I had a book coming out. 2014 was on fire for all the right reasons. We were really making progress. And in the middle of that, out of nowhere, completely unexpected and unannounced, my husband left and I was, I was not just shattered emotionally, but also just unprepared for um, being in this weird, weird place where I had to wear a public face. You know, like I was of course very, very strong-willed and uh, you know, pr pretty tough about standing up for women's equality. That, that was no problem to be strong and tough, but because of what was happening in my personal life, um, I was absolutely vulnerable and scared and a wreck and insecure and just wobbly, you know, sure, it, yeah. it was awful to have, you know, the person who is, um, you're supposed to be your rock suddenly crumbles. And I, I was wobbly in all aspects. And, um, but yet I had to, I felt like I had to wear this mask, you know, cause I mean, can you imagine like I'm fielding interviews from like BBC and NPR and I'm trying to sound composed and confident. And I was about women's 
equity. Sure. But I was a freaking mess and freaking's a, a you know, radio friendly term. Um, <laughs> I was a mess of what was really happening. And it, it, I did feel like it was split me into two different people. And it came to a point where um, that was not sustainable for me. And I felt like there was no way out of this. And the only way out was an exit plan. And it was that bad. Yeah, yeah. And what, um, I mean, you you kind of found your footing again. Um, I mean, it was pretty, uh, I don't know if coincidence is, again, like not a dramatic enough term, but the day that you decided that maybe you didn't want to be on the earth anymore, you went to the library and found out that Robin Williams had committed suicide. And he was going to be one of your, he was one of your potential narrators and um, couldn't do it for half the road, couldn't do it, but wished you luck. So you felt connected to him and... I mean, just talk a little bit about how that grounded you and maybe gave you a second to pause, a necessary second. It was, I, I now have a better, clearer picture of how important distraction is when, um, you know, when we're in a very, very troubled spot. And I didn't know that at the time, but um, yeah, it wasn't like, oh, maybe, maybe I don't want to be here anymore. Like it had become indefinite for me that I don't want to be here anymore. And I had a date, I had a plan that I was going to go through with this. And um, at that point I was, I was away, I was in upstate New York and I was working from my laptop and the only place I could get internet signal was in the local town, the library, you know, so I went there and I, I got online and um, you know, it was that, that was the last time I was planning on, checking any anything online ever and there was the news that robin williams had taken his life and it it punched me in the guts in the right way so hard um robin williams knew that we were making half the road uh we had reached out to him like you said about potentially being a commentator for the or not commentator a narrator for half the road um he he's a huge cycling fan so that's why we went that direction oh he loved bikes right so Um, his agent said, you know, he's at work on another project and sorry, he can't commit to this, but he wishes you luck. And to me, that was like, oh, you know, that had been this <laughs> note of like, oh my gosh, this is awesome. And, um, when the news came that he was no longer on this planet, it just, um, it, it flipped the switch for me that day saying, oh my God, like if, if he's gone, you know, I, I was like, oh my God, the empties got him you know, and I was feeling like the empties got me and wait, maybe, maybe there's a way, I don't know. I, I, I knew in that day that I had to ask for help. Yep. And I, you know, I went to my dad, I'm like, I, I think I need help. And I don't think I would have done that had it not have been such a, a, a tragic moving distraction as it was at that day, August 11th, 2014 with uh, Robin Williams. Wow. Wow. Well, I can speak for all of us when I can say we're glad that you're still here and you've done, uh, you, you deserve to be here. So that's very, Aww, thank, thank you for sharing that too, because I think sometimes, I mean, again, you, you're really good at putting this into words, but like, you know, you talk uh, a couple times about asking the strong people how they're really doing, asking the people who are always cracking the jokes how they're really doing. Because I mean, if I, you know, if, if someone would see you on social media or, you know, or riding your bike out in Tucson or whatever, they would be like, holy cow, she is just, she's fast, she's fit, she's smiling, she's, you know, all this stuff. And we can tell ourselves these stories about 
how other how other people's lives are going and when you're feeling the empties inside you're like oh they're definitely not right mm-hmm. and um mm-hmm. and in fact so i think it's i think it's really important i mean i know it's it goes without saying you know you got to talk about it so i so appreciate that like this just having this platform to be able to talk about it and you know if any any listeners are out there like oh my god i know that feeling or i've struggled with this or you know i've contemplated this or that you know i just want to just put a voice out there for you to know that you're not alone and and please know that there's a way around this and asking for help is an amazing way um to get started and i I love you know i'm gonna throw this out here too dimity that um i was very fortunate that i had you know my dad was really a kindred spirit to me and a best friend in so many ways and i felt that he was a safe place that i could actually utter those words i think i need help sure um and I know that not all of us are that lucky to have somebody that we feel might be receptive to those words. And if that's the case, I just want to empower people and let you know that um, the next step that I t- took, had my dad been there or not to hear those words, was very important to me. Um, I went to the website psychologytoday.com, and they actually have a link where you can find a therapist. Yeah. And it's almost like... Um, online dating, but you're looking for, <laughs> you know, a therapist that you can type in your zip code. You can type in what healthcare coverage you do or don't have. Um, and you can read these profiles of therapists, you know, those who might, who might, um, and they all have things like where they, they target depression, if that's what they practice in or anything else that you're looking for help with. And you can at least get a vibe of this sense of who's out there and who's close by. I love the whole fact that you can put in your zip code and be like, yeah. you know, I don't have to drive far. Oh, and of course, everybody's web-based these days. So maybe that doesn't matter as much to you, to what your preference is. But I like telling people that, you know, maybe explore that link if you feel like you need help, but you're maybe not ready to tell anybody or you are, but that's, that's a tool that I use. Yeah, no, that's that's super helpful. Thank you, Catherine. Okay, um, two things I want to hit on. Um, one, so let's talk about the Home Stretch Foundation because at the end of your cycling tunnel and seeing this inequity, and I mean, again, like you know, you write about um, your salaries in the book. I mean, you are not uh, coming from a white, you know, a white privileged background. I mean, you are white, but I mean, it's not like you know your dad was funding your cycling adventures by any stretch. Right. I mean, you were making less than $20,000 a year most of the time. Um, I love the line where you put, um, you know, you felt like you were really affluent because like your 1977 Volvo had uh, plastic windshield wipers on the, uh, on the <laughs> headlights. <laughs> I felt like I made it. I know, right? I had I'm arrived. Driving, I'm, I'm driving a Volvo with, yeah. But anyway, so um, so you you put together um, the Home Stretch Foundation. Can you talk a little bit about that to kind of, again, help those people get, over to the women's tour. Yes, yes. Um, after my my Volvo with the plastic windshield wiper headlights conked out after five years, I bought that car for $5,000 on a credit card. I remember that, those were good times. Um, <laughs> but I was like, okay, okay. I, I, it got to the point in 2015 where I felt like, you know what, I'm, I'm at my fittest, my fastest, my best ability as a racer, but I'm going to have to quit this sport because I can't make a living. I'm carrying two part-time jobs. And if I were a man, I'd made it to the world tour at that level. And at the world tour for men, they had a base salary of 35,000 euro. And even though that is quite low, and of course, men make millions on top of that usually, 
at least it was in place. And there are places in this world where you can live on $35,000 a year, right? Sure. But the fact that I was a woman, they didn't have a base salary for the women. I'm like, okay, two things have, has to happen. That has to change. We need to fight for a women's base salary at the world tour level, the highest elite level. Um, and then what if there were a place where, as we're fighting for this change, where women who are world tour racers or aspiring to almost be at the cusp of, you know, world tour racing, if they, if these women had a place where they could go and train for free, where they could live and not have to worry about rent and utilities, all that stuff, you know? So um, I knew for me, if I had had that, I could have lasted longer in the sport um, or started earlier even. So sure. that's where that, that impetus for change came from. And I drew up the plans. That was also part of my healing coping mechanism of being like, okay, I have two choices. I can either be like, okay, this sport sucks and I'm getting out. Or I can be like, no, this, there's a lot of potential here and we need to make change. And that to me felt like something I could focus on and distract myself with in the best possible way, you know? Sure. And um, so the home stretch, I found an amazing investor who's like, this idea is great. I believe in women's equity. Let's make it happen. And um, in twenty, in late 2016, uh, you know, December of 2016, we opened our doors for the first time. Since then, we so we've been around for about five years. Okay. Um, we have had 70 athletes from 17 different countries come through our program. We're based in Tucson, Arizona, which really is a cycling mecca especially in the winter, well, you know, fall, winter, spring months, nobody comes here in the summer. Yeah. <laughs> it's like a hundred and gazillion out, but, um, but yes, for, you know, for those three seasons, we open our doors to the pro women, they apply online, we go through an extensive interview process and uh, we can house up to eight athletes at a time here. And we've loved seeing how it's affected them, you know, yeah. on the bike, how they, have performed because they haven't had to worry about paying rent this month or this year. So sure. it makes me happy. But then the big victory came in 2020 when behind the scenes, again, the part that people don't see, you know, we were lobbying for the UCI to finally affect a women's base salary at the world tour. And they did. Oh, nice. um, I didn't know so, that. Yeah. Now, of course, being UCI is very similar to ASO and the governing body is of cycling is the UCI. And uh, rather than immediately granting full equity in 2020, they're like, well, we will build it three years incrementally because, <laughs> oh, you know, women's equality is too much all at once. <laughs> <laughs> so the good news is it's in place now. I think the base salary is around 24,000 euro. Um, and by 2023, it will be full equity as the men's um, pro salary. So we're really wow. excited about this. It's making a huge difference. And yeah, yeah. You know, how, thank you. I, I'm really, really happy about that because nothing would make me happier than shutting home stretch down because it's not needed anymore. Sure, sure. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But it's still here for now. Yes. Yes. Well, yeah. and if you have somebody, I mean, I, so you've kind of thrown in a couple things about activism and I mean, you have the last chapter of your book is a, is a really nice primer kind of, I would say the golden rules of activism, knowing that, um, you know, it's not just tweeting at somebody, um, but in fact, like you talked about having a plan, having a team, having a vision, that kind of thing. I mean, is there anything that you would, I mean, you can't distill it, or maybe you can, you probably can actually distill it into like, what's your most important piece of advice for somebody who has something, 
especially that can't maybe get involved at your level, right? Because of, you know, either family responsibilities or work, but they want to say, okay, I am definitely committed to this and I want to help, whether it's climate change or Mm. racial injustice or the school board or whatever. Great question. And absolutely, everybody can play a part depending on how much that they can give to this project. And yes, I mean, the the level to where I took it, it you know, it, it was pretty much a full-time unpaid job. Yeah. And I realized that's not everybody's cup of tea or ability, but um, that doesn't mean that you cannot serve a very, very meaningful purpose for what you can do. Um, so my first thing is find that section of the world where you want to see change, you know, like climate change, if that's your thing, seek out some of the nonprofits that exist in mm-hmm. climate change, find the one that speaks to you the most and reach out directly and say to these people, you know, who, who are on board, say like, okay, here's my skill set. I'd really like to become involved. Um, here's what I can do. You know, I'm great at organizing. I can proofread, I can write or, and, or, you know, if you've got a lot of money and you want to give, you can step into that role too and say, how can I be effective on the financial side? There are so many areas where you can be involved um, and create that coalition. Uh, sometimes a lot of what these global organizations need is someone to help them with something they're doing locally, right? Sure. So you can actually affect change locally and know that whether it's local or global, if it's all part of the pipeline of progress, then it's equally important. So, um, Definitely. And then, of course, if you are a social media user, find the activists who are on the front lines of change and support them. They're like, hey, look what this person's doing and look what this organization is doing. The more visibility that we can give in that regard is super helpful. And I realize not everybody is as into social media as others. And that's okay. You know, if that's not your voice, um, use, find what is your voice, you know, um, and reach out to them and, and it'll work great. Whatever you do, know that you can equally play a part. You know, where, here's where I can, I can give an example. Um, when we made half the road and this is where I was not with ESPN anymore. And I had to figure out how do I, how do I fund a documentary film? You know, and I, I was educated on crowdsourcing and, um, Kickstarter and Indiegogo. So long story short, the entire process of Half the Road was made because 678 people donated to that film and shared it on social media. And when I say they donated, we had people who donated $10,000 and we had people who donated $5. Yeah. And they were equally important to what we were doing. And the sharing on social media and the talking, sometimes just talking about it with friends and people, like getting it out there was huge. So um, everybody plays a part that way. And I want to remind people that that's that's just so fantastic that um, there are so many ways that we can do this. And sometimes sharing and talking is the best way to get it started. Nice, nice. And I'm going to um, link to um, the Homestretch Foundation and um, a bunch of different things, your book, obviously, and all that stuff in the show notes. So everything we talked about. Um, so last question, this is more fun. This is coming back to your athletic career because you've got a different pursuit on your um, plate right now. You are not, we're not uh, looking to, to rip it up, but instead you're, what, tell us about what you're um, up to right now, your, your latest adventure, Catherine. Oh, with the hiking? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, I will, I will. Um, so I referenced to you my dad who plays a huge part in Stand as well. Um, 
and my my dad my best friend i lost him last year and it you know just ripped a hole in my soul that uh, will always be there and i i knew needed to find a way to heal from that grief and one of the things that my dad and I started together back when I was a sophomore at Colgate, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we actually um, wanted to climb the highest point in each state. It's a thing called high pointing. It's really cool, right? <laughs> and it doesn't always mean that a high point is a mountain. You know, like in Kansas, it's a sunflower field, right? Oh, so, yeah. <laughs> right? So, but we had gotten this book and we're like, let's do this. And over the years, we were able to do a bunch of these mountains together but um we we weren't able to get to all of them and when my dad passed i felt like um i was so sad for obviously all the reasons that one would be but i was also like we never got to finish this quest and then it dawned on me i'm like wait a minute or can we (laughs) and i got a a little urn that's about you know the size of my palm yeah and um uh and I put some ashes in it and we are going around together and we are checking off the high points that we have not gotten to. And it's, it feels really good. You know, um, I love it. And people are following this and it it gives me a lot of joy. And, uh, as of today, so, um, there are 12, 12 high points left on our, Oh, that's it. Wow. 12 left. Okay. I will get to 10 of them this summer, but the two big ones, which would be Alaska and Montana, will have to wait till 2022 because I'll run out of um, time before the snow sets in. Oh, sure, <laughs> sure. Absolutely. But thank you for asking. It's yeah. really, it's fun. And it's, it, there's so much to it um, that's going on behind the scenes in a really positive way. I'm, I'm loving this journey and it, it feels good. Good. Wait, so I got to ask, is it New York Mount Marcy? It is. Wow, because I climbed that. So that brings it brings us right back to full circle. I did well, the, you... the thing at Colgate, the first, you know, the little pre-orientation thing yes. where you go out into the wilderness. It was um, not my favorite memory. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> um, the climbing itself was fine. It was more the group dynamics and all that got kind of it. stuff. But, um, but that's it. so funny. That brought me back to that. And I saw you. Um, what's the one in New Mexico? Is it Mount? Oh, Mount Wheeler Peak. Yeah. And Wheeler I did that. Peak. And I did that one with my dogs. I mean, it was, it's you fun did. to see you. Oh my yeah, gosh. Yeah. A long time ago, but yeah. yeah oh no. So. I love it. Well, Mount Marcy was the one that my dad and I did together that kicked it off. We yeah. Like, this is awesome. Cause it was the right person, right? That <laughs> yeah, was fun. Yeah. Oh, but I love that. I love that. You, well, look, you're already a high pointer. You've got two. So I do. I do. I know. So what's the one in Colorado? I should know. This. Oh yeah. Is it, is it's it Mount Elbert. Oh, Elbert. That's right. I've Elbert. done that one too. So you I, know what, I'm most... already... Oh, look at you. I, I'm well on my way. I've got three high points already. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Yeah, Colorado is pretty cool. It's almost like it has competing high points because mountains actually do change. They grow. Oh, okay. <laughs> and apparently there's um there's a little bit of controversy where someone's like, I think this mountain is now higher than Elbert. Oh. But Elbert still holds the uh, the geo seal that it's um it's the highest. Nice. And, uh, you know, by whatever, however many feet, doesn't matter. It's, it's exciting. I'm going there um, next week. Oh, very nice. Well, well, we'll have to connect. Maybe we can yes. grab some coffee or something. I would not, love that. I'm not climbing it with you, though. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair right, enough. No, I would love that, Dimity. That All would be right. so great. Awesome. Catherine, you have been great. You are such a light. Continue to shine despite the ups and the downs. And um, thank you for sharing your time with us today. And, um, and congratulations again on everything, including your book. 
Oh, Dinity, thank you. You are a light as well. And thank you for standing with me. I so appreciate <laughs> it. <laughs> That's awesome.